Well, welcome to this week's edition of The Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host. Maybe not so sketchy, Richie. <laughs> maybe not. Why, do you, why, why maybe not so sketchy this week? Because you might be the sketchy one at the end of this episode. Oh, you may be right. You may be I, right. I know I'm right. After what I've heard <laughs> in conversation for this, I know I'm right. Uh, we shall see, I guess. We'll see what happens here. So, uh... I could give him a few one-liners from the conversation that <laughs> sort of frame the sketchiness, but I'll, I'll we'll, we'll just go along with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would probably be the best thing is to just uh, do that. So some direct sh- quotes that'll shake some heads. Should be well, it should be interesting. I'm probably going to say some things that's going to make people uncomfortable today. Um, Listen, if it was enough to take me by surprise, people are going to be <laughs> on the floor dead. You guys are going to get knocked upside the head with the re-enchantment today. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so should be should be good. Should be a lot of fun. Emphasis on the enchantment. <laughs> Emphasis on the enchantment. So, all right. So on today's episode, Richie and I are going to be discussing rituals and portals. Ooh. So today we decided we wanted to touch on this topic because honestly, it's it's pretty hot topic at the moment right especially with stranger things yep um so before we dive in richie i just want to ask you you saw stranger things season four and we're not given any spoiler warnings you've had your chance to see it <laughs> you shouldn't have tuned in if you didn't want us to talk about it that's that's the only spoiler warning you're getting there you go so let me ask you um what were your thoughts on season four volume one no okay now volume two is going to be coming out July the 1st. So we've got, um, we're getting close to halfway through the through the month of June. Not quite there yet. But so we've only got about half a month left before we get a finish up season four. But as of right now, what are your thoughts on I thought four? Stranger Things season four would be this gradual sort of falling into the story like the other seasons have been mm-hmm. and not me having a mental breakdown at the end of episode one. Because if you remember, like, when I started in watching it that day, it was just within the first 30 minutes that I was messaging you and just completely freaking out. Yeah. So, it's it's a lot really fast, and it doesn't let up, and... It doesn't. I'm excited to see where it's going. Yeah. I know it, we have a lot of theories about mm-hmm. where it's going and things like that, but... Yeah. Yeah, we definitely do have a lot of theories of what's going on. Some of those have already been shared in the Sword and Staff Facebook group. Yeah. So... If you like discussing this type of stuff and like hearing us and others who think the same way that we do, uh, if you like hearing them discuss this type of stuff, head on over to our group on Facebook. You have some questions you have to answer to get in. Yeah. It's like Fort Knox to get in there. We Please don't just look- answer these questions. I yeah. can't tell you how many people have are just sitting in limbo or have been just rejected because they do not answer the questions. I do not play games when it comes Josh to the questions. Josh doesn't play games with the questions. Listen, like we talk about... The gatekeeper about, does not play games uh, with the question. We talk about fringe topics, so you can't just let anybody in, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's, you have to have a certain it's kind a of... It's a ritual, and you can't break the ritual, and the <laughs> gatekeeper will see to it. There you go. That's, there you well, go. that's, that's probably... And there's perf- the episode. There you go. That's probably a perfect segue, actually, into it. Um... But I agree with you. I think that Stranger Things Season 4, Volume 1, I thought it was phenomenal. Um, it's supposed to, I think, pick up six months after Season 3, but it picks up and it goes straight into it, and it like, oh, man. Like, I've seen a lot of people talk about how like dark they thought this season was and how gory it was, and it caught me by surprise right off the bat. But, hey, man, like... I'm yeah, here for it. I'm here for it. I thought it was really good. So, All right, so... 
to get us into today's topic, we're going to start off by talking about rituals. So it's going to be kind of two parts. First, we're going to kind of lay the foundation for thinking about rituals and ritual magic, um, because those two things go together. And then in the second part, we'll talk about portals and how it kind of ties in with rituals and magic. So, um, so to, to define our terms, okay. This week, I was thinking about a definition about what I say. Please define these terms. (laughs) I was thinking about a definition about what a ritual is because I sat down like, oh, what is a ritual? How would I describe a ritual? And I was like, oh, wow, that's a lot more complicated than than I thought that it was going to be. So, so this is where our Thomistic Aristotelian friends are going to be happy with me. Uh, This week, I made a ritual, not a ritual, (laughs) I made a definition for what a ritual is using uh, the Thomistic Aristotelian four causes. So here's my definition of a ritual. Richie, you can chime in. If you think I get something wrong, um, let me know. But here's, here's the definition. And I think it's a, it's a working definition, so it can be tweaked, okay? So my definition is this. A ritual is a patterned routine or ceremony carried out by an individual using focused intention, tools, and objects yep. for the purposes of affecting change in the scene realm. That's basically the definition of magic. Absolutely. Yeah. So the pattern, the routine, and the ceremony um, are basically the. Um, that's uh, one of the. Let me see here. The four causes. So it's it's either to affect change and assert will over creation, right? Or it's to be attuned with the natural yeah. seasons, cycles, and patterns as let, sort of a grounding. Let me let me break down this definition for us for our friends who are listening who are Thomistic and want to understand how it comes. So the uh, the patterns and the ceremonies is the formal cause, the um, the uh, individual. Uh, so it's a patterned routine and ceremony. That's that's the material or that cause uh, carried out by an individual. That is the uh, the efficient cause. Um, it's carried out by an individual, and it's uh, using uh, focused intention tools and objects. That's the material causes um, for the purpose of affecting change in the same realm. That's the final cause or the telos. So that's all four causes in that definition. So um, we're going to tweak on it a little bit whenever we get to the section on religious rituals. But basically that is my very simple definition of what a uh, ritual is. So let me give you some examples of this now. Okay, let's illustrate it for folks. Um, Brushing your teeth is a ritual. Right. How is brushing your teeth a ritual? Well, you are using a, a tool and an object, a toothbrush and toothpaste. First, it's an established regular practice. Right. It, happen, it, it occurs at various points throughout the day, usually when you usually wake up. Usually around the same time frames. Right. Usually when you wake up, usually before you go to bed. Yep. Right. Um, so, but you're using tools, right? Like you're using toothbrush, toothpaste, dental floss. And you, you're the you're the cause. You're one of the causes, and you're using it for the purposes of dental hygiene. Right. That's the final cause. Right. So, by definition, brushing your teeth is a ritual. Absolutely. Um, anything that is habitual is is ritualistic. Um, another example is taking medication. It's a ritual. Morning ritual. Morning routine. Right. First thing you, know, you do. Anything you intentionally do to affect change that, that it. <laughs> 
That that absolutely is a ritual. Yeah. So you wake up in the morning. First thing you do, you take your medicine for the day or your vitamins or whatever, your Flintstone vitamins. Um, Flintstone and, vitamins. Right. That's, that's material cause, right? You're using right. a tool for the purposes of changing, uh, affecting change, which is your body, right? You're to, for health, health purposes. Um, same thing with exercise. Exercise is a ritual. I think we just laid the foundations of using psychedelics and, rit- and ma- ritual magic. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You're... Coming soon to a Patreon-exclusive episode. <laughs> uh, sounds sketchy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> to get back on track here. We've okay, already de- we're we've back derailed, on track. We've derailed already 10 minutes into it. Um, I mean... Showering. They probably didn't expect anything else. I uh, know. At this point, everybody knows how we roll. Showering. Right? Even talking. Um, and there's ways that you could break these things. Like, for example, like talking is a ritual. Think about how you and I are doing this right now, Richie. Like, I talk, you talk, right? And it's a back and forth thing between the two. And there was, there's ways to, to break that ritual. Um, if I were to, if you, while you're talking, I just started shouting over top of you, that would break the ritual, right? Um, or if I got up on top of the table that we're at right now and just started acting like a fool. Do it. <laughs> it would break the ritual, right? Uh, we may do that before the end of it. I mean, is that chaos magic then? It, it's, I guess I guess it is. <laughs> so, um, but like there's ways to break these rituals, right? Like if you don't brush your teeth, uh, you're not going to have the affected change that you desire. If you don't take your medication, you, you might die. So there are ways you can break these things. So, um, but here's, here's, uh, here's what I want to say. These are all ritualized behaviors, these very, very simple things that we take for granted. And the reason why is because ritual is inevitable. Absolutely. Ritual is not something that is inherently evil or bad. I suppose that's a better way to say it than when I just basically took to social media and told everybody that they were practicing witches and that witchcraft and folk magic is inevitable. Yeah, that's uh, probably a much better way (laughs) of saying it. Um, We've come a long way since then. Right. And I separate ritual and and witchcraft, and we'll get into a little bit of that in the episode and why I kind of come to some of those conclusions. Josh had to autocorrect it. (laughs) I did. Um, So, but but ritual is inevitable. Um, It's not something that's inherently evil or bad, like some people think. Like we have evangelicals out there who think that like ritual is bad. Like reading red prayers like ancient prayers is bad because because praying on the spot extemporaneously is much more authentic and Jesus somehow loves that more <laughs> you know minus the fact that he taught us to pray in a ritualistic way yeah. our yeah. father who art yeah. in heaven hallowed be thy name <laughs> thy kingdom come right um but the reason ritual is inevitable yeah. like Jesus and the disciples went to the temple at various times throughout the day. Why? Because it was, it was ritual, is was, was a habit. And the reason why ritual is inevitable is because ritual is written into the very fabric of creation by God. Okay? Uh, rituals help us to order reality and to make sense of reality, and it gives us stability in the world. Right. I mean, it's it's think about think about it. Um, there's not a lot of things in your life you can control. There's a lot of things that are outside of your control. Right. But the rituals that you do on a daily basis are something that is in your control It's in your control to brush your teeth. Yep. It's in control to take a shower. It's in your control to pray. It's in your control how you treat other people in conversation. It's in your control to take your medication. Right. All of those things are in. So it gives stability. 
It brings yeah. order to our life, and it helps us make sense of reality. Um, now, I said that it was written into the fabric of creation. Let me talk about that a little bit more. Um, whenever we look at the creation week in Genesis chapter 1, we see a ritual pattern or a routine <laughs> happening there in, in the Genesis 1. Think about it. What does he do? God speaks. It happens. And then he declares it is good. Absolutely. That pattern cre- uh, continues until day six. God speaks. It happens. And then on day six, it's very good. On day seven, God rests. Okay? That's a pattern. And that pattern gets repeated in various ways throughout Scripture. Whenever you hit <clears throat> Israel, they're going to have seven festivals that sync yep. up with the uh, the creation week. Uh, whenever you hit other places, they're going to have different types of sacrifices that are going to be in cycles of sevens. Um, We talked about this a little bit on uh, the Easter episode that we did this year. What was it? I can't remember what was the metaphysics of Holy Week. We looked at uh, at Holy Week through the lens of the seven-day creation cycle. Ritual. <laughs> it's a pattern. Yep. It's a, it is. You yep. know? So, um, so it's written into the fabric of creation. God structured things in an ordered, patterned way, which fits into our definition of what this ritual is. Okay. All right. Now, let me say this. This also scales up at the religious level. Okay. In religious rituals, the same exact thing is occurring as they are in these lower-level rituals, okay? Think about it. In religious rituals, an individual is using... Here's more definition and and some tweaking, okay? An individual is using a patterned routine or ceremony, using focused intention, tools, and objects for the purposes of contacting the unseen realm for the sake of affecting the seen realm. Does that sound about right to you? Yep. So... Tell us about that a little bit. Like you, you used to be in, in the occult, right? You used to be a pagan. Whenever you used to do rituals, Richie, was that what you basically did? Did you basically um, use tools and objects and intention for the purpose of contacting the unseen realm to affect the seen realm? What did that look like in your practice? I mean, it's yeah, that it was basically two parts. You you take ritual, and it's either to exert your will. Right. And cause, uh, like, a cause and effect, like, to assert your will over creation, or it was to bring balance, alignment, and to making yourself in tune with the natural cycle seasons, patterns that are in the created order. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and whenever you did it, you got, you, I'm assuming you used to do things like enchantments. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, right? Like basically, Absolutely. basically, an enchantment is making something special. It's basic. It's basically the pagan way of, of blessing the, an object. The the ways to do those things is just. I mean, it's it's limitless. I mean, it's it, mm. it it all comes down to somebody's individual practice, right? Like you can use anything for ritual purpose, right? So, but what you're going to do is once you so even though it's very broad and eclectic, even you that's going to become a pattern. Right. In, in your own individual practice, right? Like you're, you'll have a particular way, say, that you do enchantments. Right. Or you'll have a particular way that you create um, some kind of alchemical right. <laughs> you know, brew. There's, or something. there's magic in theory and then magic in practice. And magic in practice, it differs between 
individual practitioners. Give us an example of a ritual that you've you used to do. Oh gosh. Just so that people can kind of get an idea. Uh, there was grounding rituals, uh, especially my, in my practice, w- had a lot to do with the lunar cycles. So okay. a lot of my workings would follow the lunar cycle through the, through the weeks, through the months. Mm-hmm. So my practice would wax as the moon would wax. I would do more uh, workings that required a lot more energy, especially on full moon. So you would take the full moon as the pinnacle of your practice. So that was when you do, did a lot of major energy work and then as the moon waxed and waned as it waned and dissipated that's when things sort of dialed down so my practice was very nature-based very uh created order based it it followed the natural seasons and cycles gotcha um so like the the rituals i would do i mean there's there were there were i had staples of my practice that i would practice like grounding rituals and cleansings and enchantments and things like that but there were a lot of it was just from observation of creation was very on the fly and very it's it's hard to describe it's it's very it's such an individual thing sounds to me like the dwarves from the hobbit dark for dark business (laughs) exactly yeah there you go but no no in in all seriousness though the thing that i noticed there is there's a pattern to that yeah like it's with the waxing of the moon whenever it's at its fullness, right? And then it wanes, right? So there's a pattern to that. Like there, you're, you're using more and more intention, more and more uh, focus, um, more whatever. And, and, and by living by that pattern, I mean, your, your whole life turns into a ritual. Right. I mean, your habits, your workflow, everything increases, climaxes, decreases, mm-hmm. along with the patterns of the moon. So it, it's literally an enchanted way of living. Of of every moment, really, because your whole life turns into a ritual at that point. Okay. All right. So, um, that's good. That's a great example. Okay. Now, um, let me say this: there are good ways and bad ways of doing rituals. <laughs> I mean, there are good ways and there are bad ways of doing rituals, and we're going to get into that a little bit. So we'll see where you go with this. Okay. Um. All right, so let me say this, and this will get us into that part of that conversation. I want to say this, that pagan magic is a counterfeit of the real magic. I agree. What what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper, the deeper magic in the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Okay. Um, So, for example, here's in the biblical worldview, basically what we learn is the knowledge of how to do ritual magic and things like enchantments and herbal magic and astrology, those types of things. Um, it comes from the watchers in Genesis chapter six. Right. Okay. And then not just in Genesis chapter six, but even outside in the second temple literature in say the book of Enoch. Uh, so in Enoch, I think it's chapter, um, chapter six, um. Yeah, I think it's chapter six. Let me see here. Nope, chapter seven. Um, it talks about the the watchers, uh, them falling, them go, uh, coming to the summit of Mount Hermon, and they're going to take daughters, the daughters of men, to belong to them. But it says this in chapter seven of First Enoch. It says when they uh, all the others together took themselves wives, and each one chose for himself one, and they begin to go into them sexually and to defile themselves with them, and they taught them charms. You know that's why enchant- uh, enchantments. You know that's why they say that magic is and witchcraft is belongs to women. Why they why they say that it's a very uh, feminine 
practice down to its core because women were the first ones to inherit the Watcher knowledge. Uh, I mean, it kind of goes back to the pattern of Eve being the first exactly. one who's deceived. Yep. I can see that. Um, but it says that uh, they went into them, they defiled them with themselves, and they taught them charms and enchantments. The cutting of roots made them acquainted with plants, and they became pregnant, and they bore a great giants, whose height was 3,000 ills, who consumed all the acquisitions of men, that men could no longer sustain them, and the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And each began to sin against the birds and the beasts and the reptiles and the fish, and to devour one another's flesh and to drink the blood, and the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And then it goes on a little bit further here in chapter 8, and they taught them other things too. It says, Azazel taught taught them how to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth, like metallurgy, right? Um, The art of working them in bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids, all of the kinds of costly stones, all the the coloring tinctures, uh, said there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray. They became corrupt in all their ways. Semyaza taught enchantments and root cut- cuttings. Amoros, the resolving of enchantments. And Barachiel taught astrology. Uh, Cocobel, it sounds like Cocomelon. No, <laughs> Those have got kids. Uh, taught the constellations. Uh, Ezekiel, the knowledge of clouds. Arachiel, the signs of the earth. Shemsiel, the signs of the sun. Sariel, the course of the moon. As men perished, they cried, and their cries went up to heaven. So, this book's made reference to in the Bible. Jude quotes it in Jude one fifteen. Um, the re- the writers of Scripture were, were reading this, and it even though they didn't think that it was inspired like the rest of scripture, they still yet accepted it in its testimony to be true. Yep. And so this is the biblical understanding of where these things came from. Um, it comes from the watchers. This is where enchantments and charms and root cuttings, herbal magic and astrology and metallurgy and all of those things come from. And so here's what makes this a counterfeit of God's deep magic, as C.S. Lewis would call it. It's several things. And again, for our Thomistic Aristotelian friends, we're going to speak in Thomistic terms here. Um, Here's why it's a counterfeit of God's deep magic, okay? First, ritual magic is sourced from fallen spiritual beings. I was going to say, absolutely, from the the get-go. First of all, it's stolen. (laughs) Right. So, um, So it's sourced from an illegitimate, efficient cause. Absolutely. Second, ritual magic also uses tools in an illegitimate way. They use them in a way that manipulates and placates, rather th- uh, whether that be through offerings or sacrifices or, or so on, um, or hexes, you know, those types of things. So that's the material cause. It is illegitimate material causes, okay? <clears throat> Third, and this is my last one, uh, ritual magic has a destructive final cause or telos. So, It was forbidden information given from the fallen spiritual beings to humanity, not to help, but to destroy. There's a reason why they taught them enchantments. There's a reason why they taught them uh, how to make breastplates and swords. It was so that they would use these things to destroy themselves and one another. And it's a corruption of the the actual thing. Right? And so, now, 
Just because there's an illegitimate, and this is probably where I'm going to make people uncomfortable, just because there's an illegitimate counterfeit version of magic doesn't mean that we live in a world that is magicless or that's disenchanted. Okay? I'm going to need you to repeat that again. <laughs> well, nice just, and slow so, so just because, for a soundbite that I can share across uh, the internet. So just because there's a counterfeit version of magic does not mean that we're living in a world that is magicless or disenchanted. Okay. Um, and I love it. Here's, no, here's, here's what the word magic means. Okay. It's not necessarily a bad or evil yeah. word. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, it's very related to the word um, uh, spell or grammar. Now think about what we do with grammar, right? We're spelling out words. We're, we're speaking words out into existence, right? Um, that's basically what magic is. It's like speaking things into existence. Um, it's like Tolkien talks about that we are sub-creators. God is the only creator. He's the one who speaks things into existence. But we come behind and we arrange things that already exist and bring order to them. That's basically around the, uh, around the lines of what's going on with this, this definition. And that's why you see it used in places like Lewis and Tolkien. Um, and, it's even, and it's even related to the word enchantment, right? Yep. So you've got this idea of grammar, of spell. You spell out something, right? You bring something into existence. Um, enchantment, simply, and you'll see how it's tied here. Uh, at the heart of the word enchantment is the word chant. And think about it. we live in an enchanted world because God chanted it or spoke it into existence. Right. Right. <clears throat> and so magic isn't a bad word. Just like just like uh, you know, like a ritual is not necessarily a bad thing. It's something that can be used and counterfeited. Um, I'm not the only person who said that too. I got that all of that from Malcolm Guide um, and Andrew Peterson and several other people. So that's not even original to me. Um, and they're getting it really from Lewis and Tolkien. Um, but yeah, in the Christian tradition, we see the real thing. What Lewis calls again, the deep and the deeper magic that comes from God to humanity given legitimately by divine inspiration and, and, you know, in the Christian tradition, even by derivation, uh, for the purposes of healing the world rather than destroying it. The legitimate version is what the church has historically called liturgics. (laughs) You recently (laughs) grilled me over the use of my particular use of language with that. (laughs) I prefer the word liturgic just because, like, okay, at the core, I don't have a problem with the word magic. Yeah. But I know that everybody else in Christendom, when they think of magic, like, they are not thinking about what I'm thinking about or what you're thinking about with it. Like, we're talking about God speaking things into existence, right? Or we're talking about the setting apart of something as special or blessed. Um, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking of witchcraft. They're thinking of something that they're thinking of the the falling counterfeit version, and so that's the reason why I, I like to say yeah. that the, the legitimate version is liturgics. Yep. Um, and so let, let's I, we'll get into this a little bit. Like the legitimate version of this, uh, we see in 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 various places in scripture and throughout the Christian tradition. So we see it in places like biblical rituals. Yes, there are biblical rituals out there. Like if you look in, look in the book of Leviticus, you will find a ritual called the day of atonement. Yep. And during the day of atonement, the priest would take two uh, lots called the Urim and the Thummim, 
which are tools that are used in witchcraft um, and paganism. These are a little bit different. Let's break out in a, <laughs> in a rabbit hole on divination right now. <laughs> they're, well, they're a little bit different. They have a fail safe to them in which the, they, the user knows that God is the one uh, speaking to them through these tools. And I don't think that the lots that pagans... You're tempting be, me into an argument uh, right now. Uh, but let's, let's, <laughs> I, I think we should save that for an entire episode on divination. Okay. Well, that's, that's, Richie and I will debate this point at some point. So that, that is a, that's a opening a can of worms right there that's enormous in and of itself. Okay. Um, so it's called claromancy is basically what it's called. And it's basically God gives divine answer to the, the clerics, the clergy, the, the priests through the Urim and the Thummim. Which and, all Christians are at this point. <laughs> a royal priesthood. Right. Uh, so that's all I'm going to say on that. I've got something I can say to, uh, to that, but we'll keep moving. Okay. Um, we'll save it. Um, we, won't, we won't fall apart. We won't fall apart right now and get into a okay. debate. So, um, but the, when the, the, the lot would land, it would, you would, uh, the, the scapegoat would be decided. Yeah. And the scapegoat, so the, the priest would lay a hand on and he would say some words and he would impart the sin of the nation of Israel to the scapegoat. And it would be sent out into the margins, the wilderness, the desolate places, the profane space outside of the camp of Israel to die, carrying the sins with it. That's a ritual. Yep. <laughs> it's done yearly. It's, uh, there's material causes, right? There's tools being used here, Urim and the Thummim. There are uh, animals being used here. And it's for the purpose, uh, there's an uh, efficient cause, which is God and humans uh, partnering together in the priesthood. God has his part with the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, every cast of the lot belongs to the Lord. And then the priest is the one who is, who is doing it. So he's a part of the efficient cause. And then the telos is the, uh, the, it is for the purpose of carrying away the sins so that Israel might be sacred space and the people might be set apart and sanctified and set apart from the nations outside of it on the margins. Right. So that's a ritual. <laughs> Okay, um, we see that with, with the sacrifices of Israel. There's the ascension offering. There's there's all types. There's all types of different offerings where there are different types of beasts offered up. There are clean and unclean beasts. So there's ways to break the ritual, and there's consequences for breaking the ritual. Uh, Nadab and Abihu offer up strange fire, and what happens? God comes down and consumes them with fire. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> um, now, there's also blessings, ritualistic blessings in the scriptures as well. Um, the, the priest would take blood and he would take it and he would splash it on the altar. The altar, if you've ever noticed, it basically looks like a miniature mountain, and which makes a lot of sense. God meets them at the altar because God meets people on the mountains. It's a, yep. it's a miniature microcosmic version of the mountain. It's a high, high place uh, is basically yep. what it is. Um, but there were blessings that the, the altar had to be set apart as holy, and that would come through the act of blessing it, right? Um, there's, the sacraments are rituals. Uh, think about it. If you were in a traditional Christian uh, church and you're doing community or communion on a weekly basis, um, it is ritualistic. We do it at the same time in the liturgy every week. 
And usually uh, a pastor is going to lift the elements up and he's going to say the words of institution. On the, on the night that he was betrayed, or the day that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave, gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And they took and they ate. And after this, he took a cup and after blessing it, he said, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You can say that, I, you can tell I say that on a weekly basis. Yep. <laughs> it's ritualistic. Right, it's an enchantment. It's, it's it's setting apart elements as 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 something other than what they are. It's it's making Absolutely. them special. It's this is participating metaphysically in before the, the ritual. You have bread and wine, right. bread and juice, and then the ritual turns it into body and blood. Right, and you can get into the whole debate about how that happens. If it's yeah. actually turned into body and blood, if it participates metaphysically uh, in some way uh, in, in the body and blood of Jesus in a spiritual way, the way Calvin said, you can get into all those debates. But the thing that we all agree is, is that somehow, some way, the the believer is somehow participating in the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. How does that happen? It happens through this through ritual. It's it's this is what happens. It's the same with baptism, right? What was once uh, waters that were I feel like I just need a giant rubber stamp that says magic on it, and every time you say something, just boom, just hit it. Um, it's the same thing with baptism, right? There is a way to break that ritual. Okay. Um. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But it, it, when you baptize somebody. Traditionally, you would ask them questions beforehand. Do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all of the things that are going to, you know, lead you away from the Lord Jesus? You know, you have these these questions you ask the recipient. We love a, a baptismal uh, exorcism around this place. <laughs> well, that's it. It is. It's a part of the baptismal rites yep. that is called a minor exorcism throughout church history. Yeah, um, and um, so it, whenever you do that, um, that's a part of the ritual. And then you baptize the person. Whenever you're going to baptize them, you say. We baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you baptize them, and then they come up out of the water, right? And so it's pointing to something greater than self. It's pointing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus and you being united to his death and resurrection. Right. Um, but that's a ritual, and it's good. Jesus tells us to do it, right? Um, it's the same thing with you know sacramentals and prayer and all of those things. But here's my point in saying all of this, okay? There are legitimate versions in which... Rituals are carried out, and it's the, through the church's liturgics, and this is right. the way, this is the way that it's been understood historically throughout the church throughout history. And, and talk about ways that I mean, you can break these rituals. You can break these rituals. So, for example, if you were to use, so I mean, uh, if you if you go and you get baptized in a tub of Jello in the name of the flying spaghetti monster, yeah, I mean, that I breaks mean, the ritual of baptism. Absolutely. It's no longer baptism. If you, as people were doing uh, during COVID, doing communion over Zoom and people just using whatever elements they want, like a cracker and Coke. Like, I hope this steps on so many toes. Uh, people were doing this. It was a legit I, I, thing. I saw it. Just yeah, I've seen it. And like, that's no longer communion. Yep. And you're not even doing it together. Like you're doing it individualistically on a computer screen. Like it breaks the ritual. So uh, there are ways. So this goes to show you that there are rituals because there's ways that they can be broken. Um, so now. 
this leads me to talk about it. Now, I know that people are freaked out. They're like, what? These are rituals. You know, most <laughs> of the people who are listening is not going to be freaked out by that. Like, like most people have been tracking along with us like long enough. Most people are in high church traditions to where they understand. Like Josh it. can hear the stones bouncing off the roof right now and people like bang for our blood. Like where do you think the word right comes from for these words? Rites right. is yeah. is etymologically tied to the word ritual. Rites and rituals. They they go it's yeah, it's there in our language of the church. But um but now let me get into this and it'll comfort some people, I think. So we're gonna talk about the difference between these Christian rituals and magic rituals or pagan rituals, I should say. Um, it seems to me that the difference between the two is that magic is an attempt to manipulate the natural world and perhaps even the people in it. Um, whereas Christianity, rather than manipulating nature and changing things, attempts to bring one into conformity with it. Right. Let's break that down and get into it a little bit. So basically, the differences is source and intention. Right. That's 100% right. Um, so, for example, um, one of the common ways that you see um, magic done is like through hexes or things like that. Or not even that, but like coming up with um, potions, like love potions, to, to persuade someone to fall in love with you, right? That is manipulating somebody, right? It's the same thing with hexing somebody. You are bending nature to bring harm to someone else. And as Christians, that's not how our rituals work. They're different than that. Our rituals bring healing. Right, right. I mean, think about like the Day of Atonement ritual. Like, what is the purpose of the Day of Atonement? It is not to bend nature. It's and you not- can also talk about it being uh, the difference, like between dominion and domination. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Um, but rather, our rituals are grace restoring nature, not bending it. Right. It's think about the Day of Atonement ritual, or even think about Jesus's atonement. Right. It's restoring humanity back to what we were always intended to be. By sending our sin outside the camp, we are made sacred space so that God can ritually, uh, God can be in our midst. I mean, it's even in our charge to be salt and light. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. absolutely part of it. Yeah. So we're not bending nature. We're not, um, we're not manipulating people or changing. I mean, even like with prayer. Like prayer isn't a ritual that we do to bring things under our control, but rather to bring ourselves into alignment with the one who is in control. I mean, think about the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Yeah. In magic, on earth, you have this, this, very, this very selfish, uh, self-centered decree. But in, in in Christian prayer, it's it's more of an echo, yeah. echoing the, the will and intentions of, of the Creator of God. Yeah. So this is very, very similar to how Lewis and Tolkien depict the protagonist and the antagonist in their works. So, for example, uh, Aslan and the White Witch. Okay. So the White Witch is bending the deep magic. She's bending nature. To her own agenda. To her own agenda. Yep. Right? She, like, Aslan's on the altar, right? The stone table. And she literally cites the deep magic. And then... Uh, well, even I, before that, when, when she comes to Aslan to... She cites the deep to magic. Dema- to demand uh, Edmund. Edmund's blood. That's to right. To demand that he'd be handed over to her. Mm-hmm. So she can kill him on the stone, ta- stone table. That's right. 
she cites the deep magic, which says that anybody who is a betrayer or, you know, does they must die. Yep. And so she bends it to her will. Okay. But the thing is, is there's a deeper magic, Lewis says, beyond the deep magic, beyond the, beyond the natural law that is basically the law of love. And so yeah. whenever Aslan's resurrected, he talks about the deeper magic. He talks about that if she had only knew the deeper magic, yes. just yep. beyond the deep magic, she would have known what he was going to do. And basically the deeper magic says that anyone who lays down their life on behalf of another in a traitor stead in a traitor stead yep. will reverse death and be resurrected basically. Yep. And so that's the difference between these, how these rituals work and how this enchantment is different between the two. Christianity is, a, is just as enchanted as paganism, even more, I would venture oh, to absolutely. say. But it's <clears throat> different because ours is not a bending of nature, and it's not a it just, uh, it's not it domination. Having, right. It takes it's having dominion. the correct categories to see that. That's right. It's sourced legitimately. Also, we see this in Tolkien's work, right? With, uh, say, Saruman and the orcs and the elves, right? So um, Saruman is bending nature, right? He's taking the elves and he's corrupting them. He's, yeah, he's bending them and turning he's them. He's taking what is and yeah. altering it to his own will. That's right. Um, which is basically just a smaller version of what Sauron has done. Um, he's a Maiar, right? And the, the powers that he has been given by Aero Iluvatar, he has take, taken and bent for his own gain, right? right. Um, which is echoing Morgoth. Which, Absolutely. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, it's, but it's the same thing. And it's like whenever you see the elves, though, right? You don't see them um, bending nature, right? Whenever you go to Lothlorien... You see the elves and Galadriel living amongst the trees, not cutting them down right. like Saruman or uh, Sauron. But they, or they preserve Saruman. and enhance nature. Right. And whenever you see Saruman, uh, they're cutting the trees down at Isengard, <clears throat> and his words are that the old world must burn in the fires yeah. of industry. Right. It's totally different whenever you see uh, Lothlorien in Rivendell. Um, and there's even this conversation between Sam and the, the, the hobbits and Galadriel about magic. And they ask her about... And they, you can but, see even why that the, the ones that receive the rings of power, the different races, how their, their desire to, to assert their own will led, was the door opener to corruption. And that's why the elves didn't fall to that corruption, even though they were using the, the ring, their rings of power. Right. It was also crafted by Sauron. Sauron couldn't bend them to his will because they weren't using their rings for domination. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so uh, I've got a thing here. It's an article, but it talks about uh, that uh, it says uh, the elven queen Galadriel is obliged to uh, remonstrate with the hobbits on their confused use of the word magic, both for the devices and the operations of the enemy and those for those of the elves. So basically there's a part in Lord of the Rings um, where they're confused. Like they see that there's magic in Lothlorien and that Galadriel is wielding this kind of deep magic. Yep. And they're confused about how her magic is different than um, 
than the enemy's magic. And uh, Tolkien goes on to basically say, he says, the elves, their art, their magic is art delivered from many, uh, delivered from many of its human limitations, more effortless, more quick, more complete. And its object is art, not power. Subcreation is not domination and tyrannous reforming of creation. So basically it's, in harmony with nature. It's exactly. more quick. It's more complete, more effortless. It's not right. the human limitations that we have, but it's living in harmony in a way with it that we couldn't. Right? right. It's as simple as you're not fighting upstream. You're going that's, with the flow. That's right. And so he says that it's art, not power. It's subcreation, not denominate or domination, um, or the tyrannous reforming of creation. So we're not the only people to say exactly, these things. See, yeah. Like we're like <clears throat> we are in a deep stream of Christianity that has been thinking about Absolutely. this way for a very, very long time. And the reason why we don't think this way anymore is because unfortunately um, we have been mostly influenced by secularism. Absolutely. We've basically become materialists. And so whenever we hear that and we become superstitious in ways, um, where we, like we hear the word enchantment or magic, uh, and we just instantly think negative. And I think that's was purposely done as like almost a form of legalism. Yeah, like to keep somebody safe from falling into like ditches and things. Right. Yeah. One hundred percent. So, um, so I want to say this. Uh, I reject the idea that um, that the two right these two types of magic or these um, the liturgics of the Christian tradition and the uh, corrupt magic of paganism are somehow the same and that they're identical because there are people out there who think that like there's like witches on witch talk. Who's like the mass magic. <laughs> well, I mean, they can, they can say, sorry for me using that voice and, and, and yeah, Josh, them like that, but Josh showed me the video he's talking about there, but yeah. it's because they see the inverted image. They see that it's an inverse of each other. They they see that it, the structures, the pattern, the metaphysics yep. is is similar. Right. It's just inverted. So they see the truth in both of it. But, they do, but yeah. they're confused on on aspects of it. Is right. what it is. Yeah. So um, I think that they fulfill the same desire, but they're not. They're they're different. Um, so now that was the first half of today's episode. So we're coming the in first half. <laughs> so we're coming in hot at forty six minutes. On the first half. On the first half. So now we're going to get into the second half. We had to lay the foundation for ritual magic first. Um, so now we're going to talk about the aspect that we haven't talked about yet, which is how rituals relate to portals. Okay. So um, because rituals are connecting us with the unseen realm, that means you have the possibility of opening portals. I was going to say, Josh, won't you tell the good folks that listening at home all about portals? What are, what are portals? Well, I would say that a portal is basically just a metaphysical explanation for under, for trying to understand the overlap between the seen and the unseen. It's just it's basically a mechanism. Um, and you see that, I think, described in different ways, in different right. places. Like um, portals, some, thin places, window areas, high places, yep. all of those things. Um, I think all of those are aiming at the same reality and are a mechanism tr to try to explain it. But basically uh, what what's going on is that heaven and earth are joined together in some way that we it's can't like trying to mistake. explain things thought for thought. 
Right. Yeah, I think so. But it's trying to under it's trying to explain that how heaven and earth are somehow being joined together. But the reality is, is that like even though we may not fully understand why or how that's happening, the reality is that that's true. Like even the Bible in Hebrews twelve twenty two uh, says this. So it's talking about our worship at the church, and it says that whenever we worship, it says, "You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem." and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So basically, the writer of Hebrews, who I think is probably the Apostle Paul, is basically saying that whenever we come to worship, whenever we come the church, when we, we do our thing, our liturgics, there is something unseen happening. Absolutely. And basically he says that we are gathering together on the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and that in our presence are innumerable angels in festal gathering. Right. It's, it's the way they describe, like anybody describes magic. It's a, a physical representation of things that we believe in spirit. Right. And then not only that, but he says that... Um, that the firstborn, the fir- he says, uh, where is it here? He says the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven are there. That's the saints. Yep. Because we, we see that Jesus is mentioned later on down here. It says God, the judge of all, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The firstborn uh, are enrolled in heaven are the saints. So we're worshiping in the presence of the saints when we worship. Like our loved ones who died in Christ, even though they may not be with us bodily, they are with us in a metaphysical, mysterious way, spiritually. And that's the reason why we can say that when we're worshiping, there is something deeper happening than just us I mean, I think, doing what we're I doing. I think if you step outside of Protestant churches and into higher, deeper church traditions, you see, you see this even expressed in the way that they decorate their, their places of worship. I mean, you have altars designed that shows the cloud of witnesses, and it shows the saints. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, there seems to be, from what I understand, this same exact understanding in the world of the occult. Like, it seemed like that the those who are in that world are also understanding that there is some weird overlap, mysterious overlap between the seen and the unseen. And I actually come across an article on Pathios uh, that actually talks about this a little bit. And we dropped it in the Sword and Staff group on uh, Facebook. And this article actually talks about what happens whenever you leave a magical portal open. <laughs> so I'm going to read a little bit of it, I Richie. I love it. And we're going, to, we're going to discuss it. You guys today are getting a jam like when, pa- when he sent this to me to begin with, I was shook. because like, this is, this is way too sketchy for Josh. Like, what is he doing with this? Like, <laughs> this is right up my alley. So I was thrilled. But just to see... My brother being this sketchy, I, I was all. <laughs> Listen, for it. you got to do your research for the people. Absolutely, if you're gonna make, absolutely. if you're gonna make points, you gotta go. You gotta find sources. And so, all right. So, uh, so this is on Pathios. It's uh, 
It's written by a man named John Beckett, uh, and his blog is called Musings of a Pagan, Druid, and Unitarian Universalist. So, um, obviously, we do not agree. I feel like those are my magical pronouns. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, he has a whole section on his blog about rituals and, like, how to conduct them and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but his article that he wrote was called What Happens When You Leave a Magical Portal Opening? So, you're going to see here that he is linking together ma- uh, ritual magic and the opening of portals. Absolutely. And some of the stuff that we talk about, which is high strangeness that can come as a result of it. So here's what he says. And we're going to interact with this a little bit as we, we, okay. we read it, Richie. He says, as a baby pagan, I was taught to always dismiss what you call and to take down. Uh, sorry. He says, I was taught to always dismiss what you call and to take down your circles after the ritual is over. When I began working with the ADF core order of ritual, I learned that you open the gates between the worlds at the beginning of a ritual and you close the gates at the end. All right, let's let's stop there for a second. Yeah, you go ahead. Okay, let's talk about what he's talking about there to dismiss things. Like even in you hear Christians talking about worshiping in the presence of the great cloud of witnesses, like always being in the presence of the saints. In paganism and magic, you are it's basically a production. You're setting the stage in this sacred space you create. You are in the presence of the elemental spirits, of the, the cardinal directions, all these th- of the elements themselves, all these things. Even deities. Even deities. Yeah. So it's the same sort of metaphysical thought construct of, of performing these rites and rituals in the presence of the spiritual realm. Yeah, but he basically says that in rituals, you're opening gates between the worlds. Right. And so at the end of the ritual, you have to close the gate because if Absolutely. you don't, then crap goes down. So we'll go on here. But he says, there are many reason, reasons for doing this since few of us have permanent ritual spaces, ritually opening and closing substitutes for processing into and out of a temple or sacred grove. He says, it lets us know that we're beginning something special and that we're returning to the ordinary world. It opens portals so that we can experience the other world. And then it closes those portals so that the beings and the energies that belong on the other side stay on the other side. So it's not just Richie and I making this stuff up, saying that um, portals are associated with rituals. Here is a practicing pagan who works with a, a ritual order, basically saying that this is the reason why you have to do rituals a certain way, because if you don't, there are beings and energies that belong on the other side that do not stay there. Right. All right. Let's get a little deeper into it. What happens if you don't close the gates and the portals between the worlds? In neo-pagan rites... Demons. That's how you get demons. That's how you get demons. Uh, Isaac Bonowitz said that this was a bad thing, but not a permanent thing. And I think you'd, you can comment on this here in a second, but he says... Having been the first to uh, be formally invited to the ritual, the gatekeeper is the last to be thanked. The gates between the worlds that he slash she opened need to be closed. Granted, they will eventually close on their own after a few hours or days, but in the meantime, the lives of the participants may be visited by a wide variety of energies from the other side, and not all of them pleasant. So it's a good idea to formally ask the gatekeeper to close them as he slash she leaves. He says, a lot has changed since I was a baby pagan. Beings and energies that belong on the other side are finding their way to this side on a regular basis. That's interesting. I mean, just what, just 
watched Witch Talk for a fraction of a second. You'll see how that's true. I've been noticing this for some time, but I experienced it in a rather dramatic fashion last June. So he talks about that he sees this metaphysical, like lime green bird, like come into where he was at. So it's another article, but he says in November, I wrote about, I wrote that the veil between the worlds is shredded. Regular Pathios pagan commentator Woods Wizard suggested. I can't believe that I'm quoting someone named Woods Wizard. <laughs> what Josh doesn't know is that that's one of my pen names. Oh my gosh, this is actually your blog. This is my blog. <laughs> uh, it says uh, regular Pathios pagan commentator Woods Wizard suggested that open gates and portals. Here's what I wanted to get us to right here. He is suggesting that open gates and portals may be causing dun 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 our high strangeness. Woods Wizard says this. Wrong. He says, I'm beginning to think that Isaac Bonowitz was wrong. That portals do not close up all by themselves. That some of them at least stay open. Over the past three years, I have discovered and closed two portals. I had another incident where a group opened the veil at a Samhain ritual and just left it open after they finished. Maybe unskilled people are part of the problem. Hmm. So the article goes on. I'm not going to read through all of it. Um, but basically the guy goes through and he's, he thinks that slop, there's no way that sloppy rituals could be the cause of all the high strangeness that's going on out right. there. He basically says the veil shredded and... Um, you know, there's a, there's a, so he, he thinks that there's something more going on, but, um, I think one of the things he fails to take into account is that, um, hello, there are people out there who do magic, who are doing it for malicious reasons. Absolutely. And <laughs> that, um, perhaps they're doing rituals to leave, um, gates to the other world open on there purpose. There are practitioners that I know personally whose entire practice revolves around ritually scarring locations creating portals for um, malicious entities, malevolent entities to come through. Um, He said, uh, I've been in rituals where someone found a tear in the veil and was able to open it just enough to see otherworldly light seeping in. But that's not the same thing as opening a portal the size of a castle gate where a whole army can march through. Right. So, all right. So here's where I want to take this now. I think this is interesting because me. So we're going to break down the metaphysics of a portal here. <laughs> of, a, of a. Yeah, I mean, you call it a portal, you call it whatever you want, but somehow it's it, it's basically liminality is what it, it is. is. It's it's you are creating a liminal space between the worlds, or where, at least where the the worlds overlap. With and one a portal basically is sustained liminality. Right. Um, yeah, I would imagine that there's a lot of energy goes into sustaining something like that. Um, so anyway, um, here's what I think is interesting. That many of the places where high strangeness is known to occur has occurred also in places where there was a ton of ritual magic occurring right. as well. And this is something that's argued back and forth, back and forth, back and forth by researchers over sort of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Like, it, did, did these ancients stumble upon these naturally anomalous locations with a natural sort of opening crack right fissure fracture in in the veil in in this ether and they enhanced it they opened it they pried it open and with ritual practice or did they create the tear themselves yeah through 
ritual scarring. Yeah, I mean, I think those two things don't have to be uh, opposed. I think that they can work together. Absolutely. And um, yeah, but so for example, uh, we'll talk about a couple of those places. One of those places is Skinwalker Ranch. And like, this is a place that has the, a known uh, history of Native American pop- populations there where there was tons of ritual magic occurring there. Probably one of the most active portal areas, 100%. window areas right now. And there's actually a crew that's on there now that has actually detected evidences for portals there. Yeah. Like, cr- like, it's also a naturally anomalous place. Like, it is. Like, there's weird magne- magnetic stuff going on with the place. All kinds of just natural oddities. Um, but there, it is also a place where there was a ton of ritual. And like there's petroglyphs on the rocks there that like sync up with the sky where they were, you know, bringing heaven to earth, right? Like overlap ritual. Um, So, but yeah, there's, there's actually, you know, if you check out secrets of Skinwalker Ranch, there's actually apparently quite a bit of compelling evidence that there is a portal over top of that, that place. And they actually shot a rocket into it and like it hit something and came back down, but it was nothing that was visible. They actually invited in some people to do rituals in the show to stir up activity. And like, I can't remember what season it was on, if it was a season one or season two, but, um, it actually, there was a, they invited a Jewish man in to do a, a ritual. And, uh, as they were doing it, there were odd temperature changes happening, um, stuff on infrared. I mean, it's, it's stuff. It's your basic paranormal phenomena that you see happen, yeah. even in hauntings people, and across the board, people being injured as yep. a result of it. And just really crazy things. It's what comes from poking the hornet's nest. Yeah, that's exactly right. Another one of these places as well is point pleasant, West Virginia, where the Mothman was at. And absolutely. You've had tons of high strangeness. Um, Back in, when was that? I can't really remember. 60s, 70s? Yeah, 60s, 70s, I think. And with the silver Well, it started before that with the Birdman sighting. So yeah, it, 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 goes back, it goes back all the way to the Native Americans. Yeah, absolutely, because that's, yeah, it's one of their sort of great spirit. Great spirits. Right, great spirit. And whenever we spent time there, Richie, I mean, there was an, there is still, they, there is an altar on display at the park. Like, it is literally cut in the shape of a ziggurat. It was literally an altar to the water panther. Right. So, which is one of their elemental spirits, which actually, if anybody's heard of the wampus cat, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of their take on that. Yeah. And it sets right there at the, the fork of these two sacred rivers to the Native Americans. So, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. And so, like, it's interesting. Both of these places that are anomalous and have, are famously known for high strangeness are also places where there was huge amounts of ritual magic. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. And this pagan that we're reading here doesn't seem to I think mean, so that, either. That sort of that energy, that devotion that the ancients had toward these deities, to these keeping these energy, keeping these window areas fueled and open, that continues today. I mean, they might not be calling them gods, mm-hmm. but you have people who make pilgrimages to Point Pleasant to explore all things Mothman. They're there for the sole purpose of experiencing, encountering, and learning about the Mothman, learning about this elemental spirit. So, I mean, yeah. the functionality, the, the process is still the same. Yeah. And so, like, we're not the only people suggesting that high strangeness comes as a result of ritual magic. Like, here you have a pagan 
who writes on a known, like well-known religious blog who is quoting other people who are saying exactly the same thing. Yep. Like it's not just us. Like this is how people are understanding this phenomenon. And this is going to get us back into stranger things. I think the stranger things does a great job of depicting this. Like, even though they're not using rituals proper, there are rituals in the show. And you talked about this before we come on, like Eleven's behavior is ritualistic. Right. I mean, you could, in a way, if you break it down far enough, you can absolutely say that her psychic abilities mm-hmm. are synonymous with synonymous with magic. So, right. well, she's at least using focused intention. Focused intention, yeah. Right. Yeah, which fits into our definition of of ritual. Um, but she's using it, um, you know, in there. But but. You have so this she's, idea. Technically, of, she's using ritual to yeah. tear a hole into the upside down. Well, that's what I was about to say. In this show, I think it does a great job. To, you have open portals, and you see what happens when they're left open. That's what yep. the entire show is about. And Gates you to sort of see a, a sort of a technological attempt to keep them open. Well, it's like a hydrogen collider. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know. So picture people's focused prayers, intentions rituals as that sort of collider that's it, it has the same functionality it's it's there to keep the yeah right the portal open that's right and you see what happens when the portal's left open don't you i mean you see it in our world with high strangeness but in the show you see it because demogorgons from the upside down come out into the right side up and you end up end up with all kinds of strangeness and, and it even gives me some thoughts on what you were saying about that guy going back and forth whether portals can be closed or yeah. if they can dissipate on their own yeah i mean it's sort of if you think about volcanoes i mean volcanoes can be dormant i mean they can yeah set dormant yeah so i think that uh portals these openings window areas can go into a state of dormancy but the potential is always there well you know for them to reopen for them to i think that one of the things we have to take into account is whenever these rituals happen they they profane a space right you know it's 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 the opposite of what God says. God's, he, God, he, God's rituals heal. These ones profane. God's rituals make something sacred. These make something unclean. Um, so, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, I don't think, that somebody who pro- profanes a space keeps a portal open and allows for all types of entities and energies to, uh, quote from the article we were reading, to, uh, to come through the veil. Um, so yeah, but that's what happens whenever you have portals open, you know, you get the demogorgons and the mind flayers that, that, that come out and there's all kinds of strangeness. Yep. That's right. So, all right, Richie. So we're coming in over an hour now. Um, so let's get into application. So let's talk about like, all right, what go out and do rituals, do good rituals. Don't do bad ones. Open <laughs> to interpretation. No, it's not open. To so, all right. So here's, here's the, ap- the application. Uh, we need to ground ourselves in ancient Christian liturgics. Okay. Agreed. Okay. So uh, a great starting place would be somewhere like the Book of Common Prayer. Um, you know, you can pick up. Uh, Tell them about the book you just got. Oh, I mean, I'm going to. I'm going I was to gonna say, you better dive into to, that. I'm going to. That shook me up. I'm going to. It's phenomenal. Um, so uh, other examples of this, like prayer books. like uh, So you can get the Book of Common Prayer, but there are rites and uh liturgies in those that you can use like for example i have the new 2019 book of common prayer and it has uh, liturgies in there for blessing 
a place like sanctuaries and church furniture and all those types of things. So you're setting it apart. You're enchanting it. Basically, yeah. it's, that's basically what an enchantment is, is you're setting something apart as special. That's basically what a blessing is. It's the counterfeit of, of the blessing uh, basically is what it is. So, um, but yeah, so book of common prayer. Um, there's all types of liturgical prayer books out there that are very old. There's even, a, I think St. Augustine, there's a prayer book out there from him. Um, you can get into the Puritan era and you can get the Valley of Vision, which is a Puritan-esque uh, type of prayer book. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ancient resources out there that you can get into. Um, but here's what I want to say as well. We also need creatives to come alongside what is ancient and use it as an influence to create beautiful, modern liturgics as well. Now, I get it. I know, like, I know we got people listening who's going to be like, what? Like, no, we need the ancient stuff. And yes, we do. We're with you. We're with you. We need the ancient stuff, but we also need modern things as well. Because here's the reality, guys. What is now ancient at one point was new at some point. Right. And here's the reality. We do need things that are contextualized to our days today. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this week, uh, we had people drop it in the Sword and Staff group. Um, YouTube had a tarot day. And you could go on YouTube, and there were tarot cards in the YouTube banner. But you, it, YouTube could give you a digital tarot reading on their website with the click of a button. Like, I'm sorry. But St. Augustine does I feel not. I like I could also do that with a click. They could also do that through me with the click of a button. You know, <laughs> shoot me $20 on PayPal and I'll send you a tarot reading. Uh, I'm sorry, but St. Augustine does not have a prayer for when YouTube becomes a memes, means or a medium for principalities. Right. It doesn't I mean, have it. We're just talking about the internet being a, a liminal space. Yeah, the internet is a liminal space. It is a place where... Apparently, principalities are manifesting themselves through everyday websites you and I visit. So we need not we need an ancient modern application. Yes, it needs to be grounded in the ancient. It needs to be influenced by the ancient, but it also needs to be contextualized for our day to day. And there, I have it here in front of us what I think is a beautiful example of this. I got this from the rabbit room. I mean, which not only the con- are the contents just amazing, the book itself is beautiful. It's beautiful. It is. And we nerded out over that for like a good two, two minutes over yeah. just the bonding, everything about so it. So I got it from the rabbit room who are our kind of people, um, but it's called every moment. Holy. And this is the first volume. I have the second volume on its way, but it's by a, uh, a man named, um, uh, Douglas Kane McKelvey. And basically what it is, is it is, uh, it is liturgies for just every day life. And as you go through it, um, I'm looking here at the table of contents. It's, uh, just beautifully bound. Looks like a classic leather, oh, yeah. leather bound. Yeah, it book. really does. Um, but there are liturgies and, and rituals and rites for labor and vocation. Like there's the liturgy of hours, which are daybreak, midday, and nightfall. 
um, for the liturgies for labor and vocation. There's uh, liturgy for domestic days, for one who is employed, for those who employ others, for laundering, for the preparation of a meal, um, for hurried preparation of a meal, for keeping bees, washing of windows, home repairs, students and scholars, waiters and waitresses, first responders, medical providers, before taking the stage, for fiction writers, um, for changing diapers, for those who work with wood, stone, metal, and clay. Uh, there's liturgies for creation and recreation, right? For arriving at the ocean, for leaving on holiday, those who sleep in tents, the enjoyment of bonfires, for sunset, stargazing, washing the, uh, watching the storms, first snow, consuming media, planting flowers, and for gardening. I used these two yesterday because I worked on our garden yesterday, yep. and then I also planted some blackberry bushes, and I used these liturgies, these rituals, for blessing these things. I love it. <laughs> I love every bit of that. Right. Well, here's the reality. Enchanting Win- the ra- the raspberry and blackberry bushes. I love it. Wendell Berry said it, said it this way. Um, let me find the quote here because I don't want to misquote him. Um, he says, there are no sacred and unsacred places. There are only sacred and desecrated places. So there, there are no secular places. Like there aren't like secular, there aren't sacred and secular places. Right. Like yeah. sacred and unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. So think about what that would mean practically in your day-to-day life. That means that if it's not set apart as sacred, it's not unsacred, it's desecrated. Right? right, and it's it's it goes for your garden, goes for your home, goes for every moment in your life. Like if it's not sacred, it's desecrated. And the person who wrote this book gets it. Yep. And uh, let let me uh, just read. I, I want to read some of them to you here, real quick. And practically, I think this just proves to me beyond anything that that my brother, my best buddy, is just as weird and sketchy as I am. <laughs> I mean. I love every bit of it. Um, so, uh, so here, here is the liturgy uh, for gardening, and I read this in our garden yesterday. Uh, but as O Creator who calls forth life, may this ground and our labors here invested yield good provision for the nourishing of body and soul. Lord, let our labors in this garden be fruitful. Lord, let our labors in this garden be blessed. As we work the soil, this garden plot, furrowing, planting, watering, and harvesting, may such acts become to us a livable, a living parable, a prayer acted out rather than spoken. Lord, let our labors in this garden be fruitful. Lord, let our labors in this garden be blessed. So we've got repetition going on here. It's patterned. Uh, It's a ritual. Um, As we co-labor with you and your creation to produce a beneficial harvest, May we find in such a toil a kind of rest. May this plot of ground, I love this part, may this plot of ground become a hallowed space, sacred space. I mean, space. It's, it's, it's energy impartation. <laughs> That's what we'd call it in, in paganism. But just imagine set, re- chanting this as you're working the garden. I mean, it, yeah. it's uh, awesome stuff. May this plot of <clears throat> ground become a hallowed space in these hours, a sacred time for reflection for conversation with friends and family, and for fellowship with you, our Creator. Lord, let our labors in this garden be fruitful. Lord, let the labors in this garden be blessed. Through our tending of these, your delightful creations, vegetables and fruits, beans and berries, vines and stalks, roots and flowers, 
Renew our tired hopes. Redeem our, redeem our wearied imaginations. As we cultivate gentle order, training, pruning, weeding, and protecting, so cultivate and train our wayward hearts. O Lord, that rooted in you the forms of our lives might spread in winsome witness, maturing to bear the good fruit of grace, expressed in acts of compassionate love. Lord, let our labors in this garden be fruitful. Lord, let our labors in this garden be blessed. Walk with us now, O Lord, in the stillness of this tilled and quiet space, that when we venture again into the still greater garden of your world, we might be prepared, (laughs) my dog is barking, uh, by the long practice of your presence to offer our lives as a true and nourishing provision to all who hunger for mercy. This is what happens when you read an incantation. Uh, It's not an incantation. But, all right, so... So there, there it is. It's, uh, it's beautifully done. They're very poetic. And in this book, there's also, uh, my wife has just walked in here. Uh, thank you, honey. But uh, it's also got uh, art done as well, like little, little frames. And, oh, it is just so beautifully done. There was, I'm going to read uh, one more here real quick. It was the Liturgy for Planting Flowers. And just to see, just so you can see how beautifully worded it, it is, it's just so so good. Um, it says, "In a world shadowed by cruelty, violence, and loss, is there a good reason for planting flowers?" Ah, yes. For these bursts of color and beautiful blooms are bright dabs of grace, witnesses to the promise, reminders of a spreading beauty, more eternal and therefore stronger than any evil than any grief, than any injustice or violence. What is the source of their beauty? From whence does it spring? The forms of these flowers are the intentional designs of a creator who has not abandoned his broken and rebellious creation, but has instead wholly given himself to the work of redeeming it. He has scattered the evidences of creation's former glories across the entire scape of heaven and earth. And these evidences are also foretaste of the coming redemption of all things, that those who live in this hard time between glories might see and remember, might see and take heart, might see and take delight, repetition, in the extravagant beauty of bud and bloom, knowing that these living witnesses are rumors and reminders of a joy that will soon swallow all sorrow. Very nice. Very well done. Absolutely. But there's all <laughs> kinds of uh, liturgies in this for like every occasion. There's a second volume as well. And I think this is the beginning of a project that needs to be carried on. There, there needs to be liturgies and rites and rituals uh, made for Christians uh, for this modern world that we live in. And uh, yeah, I would highly commend this book to you. And also uh, another book I would commend to you as well. Um, if you're wanting to understand, better understand some of the metaphysics of what we're talking about here today from the Christian uh, tradition, there's a book written by Hans Borsma called Heavenly Participation, Weaving of a Sacramental uh, Tapestry, I think is the subtitle. But it's basically, it gets into the metaphysics of all the things we talk about, how there is this unseen realm that um, lies beyond the seen. But not only that, but we also participate in that unseen realm through the things like the sacraments and just every, all things. So, Absolutely. So, 
well, great stuff. Good stuff. Well, Richie, you got anything else you want to add before we? I uh, mean, I've got tons, but we just we don't have time. Yeah, well, I know that I mostly talked on this one. I know that you added in some stuff on this one, but uh, you know that's what we do. We balance each other out. Like we have episodes that are more theological. We have some that are more experiential and talks about different things. But I felt like it was a fairly good and balanced episode. Like we yeah. talked about high strangeness. We talked about rituals and theology and all that. So we're coming in at an hour and 20 minutes. So we hope you guys enjoyed it. It was a little bit longer than it typically is. So hopefully it was, uh, it was worth it. And you guys are still with us and you've, <laughs> you've not, yeah. you've yeah. not, not left yet. So, all right. So Richie, you got anything else before we sign off? Go out and do rituals. Good rituals. <clears throat> good rituals. Christian rituals. Yeah. Go, go get, go get every moment. Holy. Right. Like that's just, Man, that's just, it's good. It's just the push really for re-enchantment. Yeah, the push, push for re-enchantment. I mean, you're either going to have God chanting creation into existence or the demons. Like, you, you, um, all of creation is ritualistic, like we said earlier. Um, the only option, the only thing that you get, the only choice that you get is if your rituals will be dedicated to the one true God or someone else. Right. Um, the only choice that you get is if your space will be sacred space or desecrated space. Those are the only options you get. So you need to be thinking intentionally about this. So, all right. Well, if you guys enjoyed this episode, if you'd like more content, bonus content, head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order for just $5 a month. You can get the sword and staff uncut where you get, Oh man, you get these editions delivered to you faster than anybody else does. You get bonus editions. You get all access to to us. You get access to all kinds of just Patreon exclusive stuff that we drop that doesn't go anywhere else. Also, we have higher tiers as well, which we've been talking about. We're going to be sending out some swag boxes and uh, swag packages for those who are signed up on higher tiers. We've kind of renamed them a little bit. We've got Sword and Staff Bronze, which is the Sword and Staff Uncut, uh, $5 tier. We've got the Sword and Staff Silver, which is our $10 tier. We've got the Sword and Staff Gold, which was our $25 tier. We've got Sword and Staff Crystal, which is our $50 tier. And uh, Richie, I don't know if you got anything you want to tell them about with those packages, but I know that you've got a mean monster box that you're wanting to send out to people uh, for Halloween. So tell people about that a little bit. Oh gosh, are we going <clears> to <throat> finally ahead. announce? Yeah, the, go ahead, tell them. the theme of the of the box. Go of October. ahead, yeah, go ahead and, and okay. announce the it. The theme for the box of October for the uh, is it a reenchantment box? Is that what we're calling this, or is this the reenchantment one? I don't know. I mean, I guess we could call it reenchantment, but uh, the liturgical boxes. Liturgical box was the mainly the reenchantment box, but yeah. the theme for the October box. I like reenchantment box. Yeah, is yeah. Uh, Appalachian cryptids. Yeah. So high strangeness in Appalachia. Okay. So in that box, it's going to be coming to you. If you're a patron, um, if you're a, if you're above sword and staff bronze, if you're sword and staff bronze, you just get access to our Patreon and all of those things. But if you are sword and staff silver or above sword and staff crystal, um, you're going to get some swag packages, smaller packages for those. And we're going to be sending the boxes out to those who are, um, who are our $50 crystal patrons. So they'll be getting the boxes. We also are talking about making those boxes available for anybody to just purchase on our store. 
So even if you're not a patron, you'll still yet have the ability to buy some of these boxes. We've got another box coming out in December. It's going to be shipped out in November so that it's here before December, but it's going to be a re-enchantment box, and it's going to be for Advent and Christmas Tide. And some of the things we're kicking around for that right now, Richie, is we're talking about Advent candles. Um, we're talking about some uh, sacramentals and that kind of stuff, like uh, prayer ropes. We're talking about uh, maybe some... Uh, Blessed oil for things like that for the home and, you know, for setting something around as part of sacred. Because that's what anointing oil is. Like, contrary to popular belief, when you're anointing something, you're setting it apart as sacred and special. So that's, oh, that's my father-in-law this time. And so, uh, so yeah, so those should be some of the things. We'll just go ahead and announce those things for now. But uh, just stay tuned. We've got more we're going to release here in the coming weeks. So. All right, Richie, you got anything else before we sign off? I'm good. All right, well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's edition of The Sword and Staff. We'll see you next time. See you then. See you.